0: All right, here we go on a Sunday morning in Las Vegas, just after 8 o'clock, I'm Brian Feldman, and this is Out of Line. We are here live, same time, every Sunday on Fox Sports Radio, 98.9 FM at 1340 AM, flagship of the Vegas Golden Knights, coming to you live this morning from my home office in Las Vegas. Normally, we do the show out of the Wizden in Las Vegas, that's as of the pandemic, because Again, we are and have been booted from the Fox Sports Residential Bank Corp studio until further notice due to COVID code of protocol. But since The Wiz is on vacation, I am at home and there is no video today. So turn off Facebook Live. It's cool. Face for the radio, and I'm doing what I should be today. Producing today's show and social distancing back in the Fox Sports Residential Bank Corp studio is Chris Magnum Chapman. Um, Mags, aside from producing a number of shows at Lotus Broadcasting, is also the locker room reporter for the Vegas Golden Knights Radio Network and the pre-game host for UNLV football on our sister station, IESPN, the leader. The show is also streaming live on the LV Sports Network. And you can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Adeline Fox LV. Since we are live, your calls and questions are welcome. The Fox Sports Residential Bank Corp Studio Line is is 702-876-1340. And it is now time for What's On Tap. What's On Tap is brought to you by title sponsor, Residential Bank Corp. Whether purchasing a new home or refinancing the home you currently own, Residential Bank Corp is the company to turn to for all your home financing needs. Residential Bank Corp, funding America one neighborhood at a time, now offering $2,500 free to everyone and anyone who qualifies for a home purchase loan in the state of Nevada. Call 702-964-5720 for more information on that. On tap, the Vegas Golden Knights have lost three straight games and three of their first four, as a matter of fact, three in a row now. Are they in trouble? We'll be joined shortly by the man who covers the Vegas Golden Knights for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, David Shane, to fill us in and break it down. UNLV, once again, was in a game but once again found a way to lose and are still searching for win number 1 under current head coach Marcus Arroyo the 2021 world series matchup is now set compliments of Eddie Arroyo and the Atlanta Braves and the Raiders might be missing their best player for today's game against the Eagles we'll tell you about that we'll also talk key NFL 7 matchups and I should say week seven NFL matchups and of course college football. Some some upsets again happening yesterday. We'll talk about that as well. That's what's on tap. If you are looking to buy a home or to refinance the home you currently own, choose a company you can trust, Residential Bank Corp Funding America One Neighborhood at a time. And right now, Residential Bank Corp is offering Nevada home buyers twenty five hundred dollars toward closing costs for anyone and everyone who qualifies for a home purchase loan in the state of Nevada, call 702-964-5720 for details. And before we get jumping into this, Chris, how you doing back there? Everything good?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a big day here for me. It's uh, Liverpool taking on Manchester United, so it's a uh, pretty big Sunday morning for me. Oh, and by the way, the Jets are playing the Patriots, but, uh, well...
0: That's all. That's a that's a story we'll talk about in a that, little. Bit, that's but a minor right. detail. And it's but... funny you mentioned Manchester United. I know Liverpool mentioned it. it's huge to your heart, but a big day for Las Vegas fans is the Raiders play the Eagles, coming off of a big win last week. On the road in Denver under an interim head coach, and of course the Vegas Golden Knights. Man, they've got to try to right the ship, and they're playing a pretty formidable New York Islanders team tonight. I thought that would be big for you as well. The Islanders, New York. I think you're more of an Islanders fan than a Rangers fan, right?
1: Yeah, I'm not. ai was never a big Rangers fan growing up. I actually was a Devils fan, and I still still like to see the Devils do good. But uh, I think when you're when you're a Devils fan or you're an Islanders fan, you kind of unite and you root against the Rangers. And the funny thing is between the devils and the and the islanders they have seven stanley cups the rangers have one since 1940 so uh rangers for all the accolades and all the praise they get at the end of the day they're little brother to both the islanders and the devils so uh <laughs> you know the only the only the only thing the devils and the rangers have in common is that they were they both ended up losing to the to the LA Kings earlier in this uh century in the Stanley Cup finals uh, or final I should say Devils and Rangers both getting there, both getting demolished by some really, really good LA Kings teams, and uh, that's that's about all they have in common in, in, in recent memory. But uh, both teams looking to maybe make the playoffs. Devils and Rangers both off to pretty good starts. So uh, Islanders a little slow out of the gate, but uh, you know, I think of the three teams, I think they're the best, and I think it'll it'll prove its way over the course of an eighty-two game season that the Islanders are the best team in the in the New York New Jersey area, but. Uh, Yeah, another huge sporting event today, by the way. In fact, it's the most watched sporting event on the planet. And I'm sure people are wondering, what the hell am I talking about? I've never watched it. I don't care to watch it. I have no idea what's going on. I tried to watch the sport once or twice, and I don't get it. But it's India against Pakistan in cricket, and there will be a billion people worldwide watching that.
0: Holy cow! Well, yeah, that's a, that's a lot. One, that's like that's like I definitely I can definitely see the appeal based that's on the like, popularity.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like literally like one seventh or one eighth of the population of the planet watching India against Pakistan in cricket, and I guess that that's today as well. So, uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona—it's a huge, huge rivalry day in in the world of sports. Somehow, Islanders and. And, and uh, Golden Knights are part of that. But, uh, yeah, huge, huge day in sports.
0: Uh, I'm excited to get rocking and rolling with the show. And I think uh, is our guest on the line? Not yet. Okay. Get him on the line. It, it is time for nightcaps. So grab him. The uh, hockey players, uh, as you know, are warriors. They don't give up.
2: They come to play every game.
0: It's
1: time for night a cup full of the Vegas golden Knights from highlights to interviews, to special events. The puck starts here. So the Knights are going to lose.
2: Here's the final three seconds. And it's all over at T-Mobile arena. The Knights have suffered their third consecutive loss. They're one and three. The Oilers have started five and oh.
0: Yeah. Uh, Oilers start five and zero, And, uh, Looks like uh, the Vegas Golden Knights kind of stuck in the mud. The amazing thing is, is every game they have started out by scoring the first goal. Matter of fact, three in the first game against the Kraken. The one and only game they won against the expansion Seattle Kraken. Um, but they scored three straight games. Uh, three straight goals I should say in that game and then let the Kraken back into the game and they ended up hanging on and winning by somewhat of a controversial goal by Chandler Stevenson but uh, the kicking motion kind of came after it hit his skate so they let it be a goal and that was uh, a goal that turned out to be the goal that represents right now the one and only win for the Vegas Golden Knights in their first four tries they'll try again tonight in a three-game homestand as they take on the New York Islanders are getting off to a little bit of a rough start themselves but um, this is a crucial matchup for Vegas man after losing uh, you know the last two games both at home at T-Mobile Arena i think they've got to find a way to win this game against the Islanders and uh, to break this game down and what's gone on this season so far i am joined right on the residential Court fox sports studio line by david shane who covers the vegas Golden knights for the las vegas review journal david appreciate you joining the show again today and a little bit discouraging actually talking kind of negatively about the vegas Golden knights i don't remember the last time i've done that
2: yeah and neither do i to be quite frank it's been a little been a little different it's definitely a different feeling uh around the team certainly you know with the players and the coaches and and definitely among the fan base you know you hear the players just talk and you know, you different, different vibes, uh, different feeling. You're getting some different buzzwords from them, and, and I think it's pretty well documented, you know, if anybody was in the building uh, the other night and saw the empty seats, how some of the fans are feeling about this. So it's, it's definitely new um, for, for a team and a fan base that's had a lot of success. They haven't, uh, they haven't really experienced this, at least, you know, maybe in, except for the second season when Nate Schmidt was out and they got off to a slow start.
0: You know, David, the first time I always try to check StubHub, and just so I can keep a, you know, keep abreast of what tickets are going for and stuff, and what you can get them for. And letting family members and friends know out of state that are coming in that want to see games, and before Friday night's game against Edmonton, and arguably the best player, one of the top three players in the National Hockey League and Connor McDavid coming in, you would think in Edmonton off to a hot start, you would think that would be a big ticket. I heard on StubHub right before the game you get tickets for as little as $100. Now, I'm not saying that $100 is a little bit of money, but to see a Vegas Gold night game, that would be considered dirt cheap Since uh, the inaugural season of 2017 2018. Uh, Now, maybe, best time than ever to try to get some tickets because it still is a show pre game uh, for the Vegas Golden Knights. But, David, uh, talking about this team, you know, Chris Chapman has said many times, you know, watching them in the preseason, that they didn't play a 60 minute game all preseason. And you know normally it wouldn't be a concern because they're mixing in and out players you're seeing you know young players who probably aren't even going to play very much if at all on this team during the preseason but it seems to have been a carryover to the regular season david i haven't seen this team play a full 60 minute game yet in their first four games let alone their the, the preseason
2: yeah i mean that's that's all part of it um you know they can talk about the injuries all they want and that's real you know i mean it's it's their they're shorthanded. That's fact. I mean, what teams are out there without their two leading scores and you know, a couple of key defensemen and you know everything else that they've had to do. I mean, they they had three forwards out for three you know three weeks and just got them back: uh, Howden, Waugh, and Carrier. So even you know even when they've you know even when even though they've they've gotten a couple guys back, like you know, like I said, it, it hasn't been the full team for for at least a month, and it's hard when you come in and you're implementing new systems with with the way, the way that they are with the four check and doing some different things, you know, in the neutral zone, and and you have guys and you're not really able to work on it, you're not really able to get everybody on the same page and be cohesive about it. I mean, we heard, you know, toward the end of the preseason when it was you know revealed or kind of came out that they were you know, doing some different things in the neutral zone and, and everybody was saying, you know, it's still an adjustment, still a work in progress, all those sorts of things. So I, I, I think if you read between the lines and you go back and in hindsight, you kind of look at it and maybe some of the warning signs were there in terms of just, you know, their game wasn't tightened up yet. They were still kind of figuring out their, their process as pizza board likes to say, um, Yanmark even talked about that yesterday that, you know, some of the success and, and, whatever this team has had before, they need to throw that out the window. And this is, you know, a new team, a lot of new faces, and, and they're trying to establish, you know, their own identity and what is the best way, you know, for this particular version of the Golden Knights to play to be successful.
0: You know, David, you, you, you mentioned Mark Stone and Max Patchwood when I mean, you talk about their two leading scorers and how valuable they are to the team, regardless of Mark Stone's uh disappearance, for lack of a better term, last year in the, co- in the conference uh, finals, or I should say the Stanley Cup semifinals, the way it was set up last year. Um, and, but there's still no question, Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty, the cornerstones of this team as far as you know, the offensive ability of this team goes and scoring goes, what are you hearing as far as the return of these two guys? And, of course, we already know Alex Tuck. We're probably not going to see him until the new year. Uh, those are big losses.
2: Yeah, um, Alex Tuck, I think, was. They said February, and the, the weird thing about February is obviously there's an Olympic break now this year. So, depending on when in February it could be, I mean, you might just, you know, want him to come back after uh, that Olympic break. That doesn't make a lot of sense to, like, maybe come back for a game and then sit for three weeks. So, yeah, Alex Tuck's going to be out for a while. It sounds like Pachoretti is somewhere in the six week neighborhood, uh, lower body fracture that's usually about the timetable, and that's what was reported uh, by Elliot Friedman. And, you know, Stone seems much more ambiguous. We've gotten the between day-to-day and week-to-week uh, timetable from Pete DeBoer, which I don't really know what that means. They're really ambiguous about, you know, how long day-to-day is versus how, how long week-to-week is. I can give my best guess and say, I, based on that timetable, I would think it's somewhere between about 10 to 14 days. Um, usually day to day is, you know, anywhere from like a week to a little bit more than a week. I would say week to week starts getting in the minimum of like two to four week range. So if you're talking between there, I I would think it's a couple weeks. And, you know, if you're the Golden Knights, you're you're trying to tread water. You're trying to keep her, you know, stay afloat, stay around 500 and, you know, don't let anybody get too far ahead of you in the Pacific Division, you know, until you get those guys back and some of those reinforcements and, and you'll get back, to, to full strength, really.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a, the hockey's famous for when there's an injury. It's either an upper body or a lower body injury. They never actually pinpoint the injury with Mark Stone, and I'm I'm frankly quite surprised that it's only going to be this short of a time, maybe ten days to fourteen days. I mean, he was literally couldn't put any weight on, a, on his leg and was helped off the ice. What exactly is the injury, if you know, David? And, and uh, I mean, really, it's surprising that he's going to heal up this quick, based on what we yeah, saw. Yeah,
2: no, I I don't know the specific injury. I can I can look at that that shot. I can guess. I can you know, predict or, or hypothesize that it's somewhere in like that groin cord quad area, I mean, he kind of leaned over and that seemed to be where he was grabbing. I think more so to me was just he didn't look right in that game that he got hurt even before uh, he left the ice. He was not skating well. The stride was not powerful. He wasn't pushing off, which, you know, is usually the type of, Thing that's indicative of a groin or something in that area. I mean, look, I can get, I can guess all I want. This is a very tight-lipped organization. When it comes to injuries, obviously, some other people with hip and things are not gonna, not gonna speak out. You know, a lot of that. But you know, just in terms of of what it looked like and what it sounded like in terms of the doctors, like he he went for further evaluation. Then he went to see doctors on Monday and and all that, and then it came back that he didn't need surgery. So it was pretty obvious that, you know, they were trying to look at something, determine whether that was the course of, of treatment. And once it, once they realized it wasn't that bad, you know, then yeah, you're probably putting like a two week you know timetable on it, and you see where you're at. So I don't think you want to lock anything in and, and and say okay, you know, let's circle this date, and and he'll be back by then. You never know, you know, with injuries, and especially if it's a type of thing that that it seems to be, uh, again, I'm just guessing, you know, but it's probably good news. I mean, if, if ever a day-to-day, week-to-week, you know, type diagnosis was good news, you know, the one for Mark Stone probably is because it means he doesn't need surgery and it means it's probably not as severe as it originally in, uh, looked at least.
0: We are talking with David Shane. He is with uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal. One of the, his big assignments, covering the Vegas Golden Knights, does a great job on that. We appreciate you joining the show. Uh, one of the biggest, you know, conversations everywhere going into this season was obviously the net netminder, the goaltender, and of course, uh, uh, you want to call it the departure, the uh, the the send off of Mark Andre Fleury. Not the greatest thing in, in the greatest way. Um, That that seems to be my biggest issue, maybe the way the Vegas Golden Knights did it, but I have no issue with Marc-Andre Fleury being gone. I've stated that several times. I've been in a lot of arguments, David, over the fact that I thought it was the best move for the Vegas Golden Knights, not just for the $7 million that they would have taken the hit against the cap, but the fact that Marc-Andre Fleury just had arguably one of his best, if not his best season as an NHL player, wins the Vesna Trophy, and at his age, there's no more upside to a career. And I said, you know, if there was ever a time to let him go, and especially after the gap in Game 3 of the Stanley Cup semifinals, um, that was all the talk there was until he was sent to Chicago. And I've said this many times, when he was sent to Chicago, All of a sudden, the talk became, oh, my God, can you believe they did this to Marc-Andre Fleury? And everyone kind of forgot about what happened in the Stanley Cup playoffs, which was monumental. I mean, I'm sorry. uh, This guy's had a storied career. That is a mistake you don't make in Bantam hockey. And he did, and he did it again this year, which is really surprising. But the point is, I never wanted anyone harping on that. I wanted that to go away, to keep his legacy. He is the face of this franchise. They should erect a statue of him and put it in front of T-Mobile Arena. Maybe one day they will. But, again, it's a long soliloquy to say I thought it was the proper move and the best move. Unfortunately, Marc-Andre Fleury not really playing that well in Chicago right now, but I think for all concerned, I think it was time and it was the right move for the Vegas Golden Knights. The question is, is Robin Leonard – the goalie of the future, say, for the next five seasons for this team. A lot to a lot to uh, engulf, uh, David, but uh, your, your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't see why he wouldn't be. I mean, they invested in him. They gave him the contract. They gave him, you know, basically the number one job. I mean, Kelly McCrimmon flat out said from the moment that they drafted Marc-Andre Fleury, in the expansion draft, they were always looking at who was going to be able to take over. Who was the heir apparent? Who was the next one? You know, they, they brought in Malcolm Subin that first season off waivers. They said, you know, potentially way down the road, maybe he's a guy that can, you know, develop into that goalie, that number one guy. Obviously we know that that didn't happen. There's nobody in their system. There's nobody that was ready, you know, at, at the time and all this, they had made the trade for Robin Miner and, They looked ahead, and they said, you know, this is a guy who the past three years has had the best save percentage of any goaltender in the NHL that started more than 100 games. Better than Vasilevsky, better better than anybody. Like, that's just a fact. I don't care what anybody says. The numbers are the numbers. Like, Robin Leonard has been an elite goaltender in the NHL the last three years. So anybody that thinks or expects there to be some massive drop-off in the goaltending because Robin Leonard is there instead of Marc-Andre Fleury. I I think they're, they're, they're just, they're sadly mistaken. Now the problem right now is the Knights aren't playing well in front of Robin Leonard. And there's been one or two goals maybe, you know, that he wants back. I can certainly think in that, you know, Seattle game, even though that was the one that they won, there were a couple goals that, that he probably would look on film and, and didn't like. So yeah, he's got to improve. Yeah. The players in front of him have to improve, but you know, not to sound condescending or anything to the fan base, I just think there needs to be an acceptance here that Robin Leonard is the starting goaltender. And Robin Leonard on top of that is an elite goaltender. And anybody who thinks, you know, the Golden Knights are gonna suddenly fall on their face because the goaltending isn't gonna be good enough, I, I just I just think that's incorrect.
0: I'm right there with you, David. I've, I've said the same thing. I think Robin Leonard is beyond serviceable. He is a good goaltender, all-star potential. And we see He's a big man. It's just a completely different style of goaltending that you saw with Marc-Andre Fleury. who's a smaller guy and more like Felix, the cat, uh, you know, you, you've got uh, Robin Leonard, who's a big guy, covers the goal, but hey, he is also really good, stops a lot of uh, a lot of tough shots, and we've seen it. It's not he is not the problem with this Golden Knights team, and that brings us to tonight's game. You've got the Islanders coming in; they're two and two, coming off of a win and uh, finishing up a road trip. But they just beat the Arizona Coyotes, shut them out three goals to none, and now they come in for a game tonight against the Vegas Golden Knights team that really is in need of a victory. What do you think is going to happen tonight, and what do you see at least for the near future for this Vegas
2: Golden Knights team? Well, I thought there were some signs in the Edmonton game, even though they you know, didn't come out on the right side of the result, that they're getting closer you know, to the way that they want to play. I think... You know, it's hard because what they have to do right now is sort of swallow their pride and be a little bit humble and say, okay, you know, we can't necessarily get into back-and-forth offense hockey. With a lot of these teams, we have to play a little tighter defensively, you know, lock things down, be hard to play against. You know, all, all, the, all the cliches that you hear about, you know, more defensive-minded teams, you know, the hard part is, they're trying to do all that, and then you you got Edmonton coming in with Connor McDavid and Leon Dryside and every little mistake and every little thing gets magnified. And there were just you know a couple little you know key turnovers. Obviously, the Nick Hague one for the fourth goal, you know that that jumps out. But there were some signs I think that they were getting closer, you know, to the way that they want to play. I thought they actually did a a really good job on Connor McDavid in that game for the most part, and I'll credit. You know Shea Theodore for that matchup and his skating ability and you know his skill and, and talent on the back end to keep up with McDavid and you know limit time and space and all the you know the cliches that they they like to say. But I think going against the Islanders, which is obviously going to you know be a little more close to the vest. You know they're not going to take as many chances. Other than you know maybe Matthew Barzell, they're not going to have like the elite offensive you know players that the Oilers will have. So I think from that standpoint, maybe it'll help the Knights you know, just, just kind of figure things out, get to their game. I would expect it to be, you know, one of those tighter checking, uh, you know, maybe lower scoring type games. And I don't know this hundred percent, obviously we haven't been out to morning skate and had a chance to talk to Pete DeBoer or anything yet. But if Robin Leonard gets to start again today, that's going to be, you know, an emotional start for him. He, he faced, he likes to call him long Island. Uh, he faced the Islanders or long Island when he was with Chicago uh, a couple of seasons ago before the trade, but that's the only time since he had his one season out there. And, he, you know, he's been pretty open and I think everybody's aware of how he feels, you know, about that fan base and, and his one year there and how it, you know, helped turn him around and, and really resurrect his career. So I'm sure it'll be an emotional game, uh, you know, for him if he's in goal to uh, look across and, and see that uniform again. I agree.
0: I'm, I'm excited to see it. And the one thing for me, David, is why this game is so important also, is after this game, six of their next seven are on the road. And I don't think you want to depart T-Mobile with another loss and end up 1-4 and heading into a two-game road trip, which ultimately, again, is 6-7 on the road. A tough road to haul, no pun intended. But uh, the Golden Knights, I think, tonight is a crucial game. And I think, again, Robin Leonard does want to show up well against the New York Islanders. He is David Shane. Again, you can catch him in the Review Journal every day. Uh, Great writer. Appreciate you. And, again, he covers the Vegas Golden Knights, among many other things. David, thanks for joining the show. We'll definitely have you on again. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. Enjoy the game tonight. Looking forward to it again. That's David Shane of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And, Chris, moving on, uh, it is time to talk about UNLV. I don't know how how much you want to get into the conversation with me because I know being the pre-pre-game host, uh, you have to be positive, and I try to stay positive as well. Chris, the team has been competitive in a lot of games this year, but they're now 0-7, 0-13 under Marcus uh, under Marcus Arroyo, and uh, this is getting pretty scary. It's another game they could have won and maybe should have won. Um, they should have been up seventeen to three at halftime. Instead, a late fumble by Charles Williams deep in UNLV territory led to San Jose State's touchdown, and it was a seventeen to ten halftime lead for UNLV. I really think that was a big game changer, and UNLV could ill afford that, as we know. Ultimately, they lost. But um, you know, I was shocked, Chris. I'll, I, I want to hear your opinion. But at the end of the first half, you either throw the ball way downfield or kneel on the football with a little over a minute to go on the ball. Don't start running the ball and trying to do some edge running and see how many yards you can pick up. That might be the standard practice, but you have a 14-point lead against – an opponent going into halftime when you haven't won a game in 12 games at this point in time. Why the hell are you taking any kind of chances of turning that ball over anywhere close to on your side of the field and not taking a 14-point lead into halftime? Just my opinion. And, again, I'm being an armchair coach. But, Chris, there's been a lot of times I think armchair coaches may be accurate when it comes to UNLV this year.
1: Well, well, let's, let's look at this objectively. Yes, it, it's it's easy in hindsight to say that Marcus Arroyo should have either had Kate uh, Cameron feel throwing the ball downfield or taking a knee. The reality is Charles Williams is one of the best running backs in the Mountain West. The reality is Charles Williams very rarely fumbles the ball. I don't think Marcus Arroyo was looking at it as a that there was even a chance that Charles Williams would have fumbled the ball. I, I look. In hindsight, it's easy to say he should have done this, he should have done that. In reality, you're you have one of the most reliable players in program history with the ball in his hands. You don't expect him to fumble. Now, I I will say that, in in my opinion, maybe maybe he should have played it a little more conservatively. Maybe he should have taken the knee. But it, or if you were gonna like you said, if you're gonna be aggressive, then throw the ball downfield. If Cameron Field throws an interception at the twenty yard line. San Jose State's taking a knee and, and you go into the half up 17-3. I think there's there's the, the issue that people are kind of overlooking here is what transpired in the second half. UNLV only scored three points in the second half of that game against San Jose State, which tells me that San Jose State's defense made the big adjustments and Marcus Royo did not make the adjustments on the offensive side of the ball for UNLV to continue moving the ball downfield. There were some bad breaks in that game, but I think they even themselves out, right? San Jose State fumbles the opening kickoff. UNLV recovers. They go in, score a touchdown. Well, in the second half, UNLV punts the ball. San Jose State's punter muffs the ball, and a Rebel defender is there, and the ball goes under his legs at the 11-yard line, and San Jose State's returner is able to pull the ball out from under his legs and recover. If UNLV recovers that ball, they're probably going in for a touchdown, and it's game over at that point. But the second half was, was where really, I think what was was a little frustrating for fans, because, like I said, you, you, you only score three points, and that came on the opening drive. And then you have the ball for seven and a half minutes, essentially, in the fourth quarter, needing a drive to, to tie the game and score a touchdown. Cameron field, look, they, I think they ran 19 plays on that drive. They had a bunch of third and long conversions. They only get down to about, what, the 12, 15-yard line? And they're unable to punch the ball, and they ran out of time despite having the ball for seven and a half minutes. That's what, what, what people should be upset about. That's what people should be angry about. Look, don't be angry about the Charles Williams fumble. It happens. I feel confident giving Chuck the ball. I feel confident that he's not going to turn it over. I don't think that's a big issue. Yeah, it, it turned out to be a big monumentality. Monu, uh, momentum changer in the game, but I think in I, I I think if I was in Marcus Arroyo's position, I would have felt 100 percent confident doing the exact same thing he had at the end of the half. Like I said, the, the second half, you've got to be better. Cameron Friel has grown a lot. He shows a lot of poise and and the reality is Cameron Friel is getting hammered. He's getting sacked almost more, well, there's no almost more than any quarterback in the conference. And that last hit that ended the game, first of all, I have no idea how that's not a targeting call because the linebacker or safety, I'm not sure who it was who came in on the blitz, clearly led with the crown of his helmet. The ref is standing right there. My, my, my feeling on, on this is pretty simple. It was too close to not call. You could throw the flag because the play is going to be reviewed regardless of whether it's a penalty or not if you throw the flag. If it's not a spear or a targeting, then the game's over. If it is, then UNLV has first and goal from like the five-yard line with seven seconds to go. I think it was a poor job of the official to not use for the proper discretion. I think the ref, he probably froze, and he probably did not want to throw the flag on the final play of the game, but the reality is, you allowed a kid to get absolutely demolished on that play. And I know Marcus Arroyo said Cameron Friel was okay after the game. He looked like he suffered a concussion. He was slow to get up. He was a bit woozy to get off the field. I, I I I just don't know how you rightfully watch that 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 play from the official standpoint and you don't throw the flag. It was too close to not throw because you know, as a ref, it's going to be reviewed.
0: Well, Chris, here's the thing. Is you talk about that, and I agree 100%. That was absolutely wicked, and it looked like to me, and I was standing on the field watching the end of this game, it looked like to me that that the, the guy left his feet and speared and a spirit of Cameron Friel, that's what it looked like, led with his helmet and left his feet, which completely uh, is an example of what targeting it is. However, again, we're, we keep saying if this would have happened, but this happened, if ifs and Butts were candy and nuts, every day would be Christmas. And that's what we keep talking about when it comes to UNLV, is if this happened, if that happened, what it boils down to is this team finds a way to lose every week. And yeah, again, yeah. Chris, if you look at that last play, how in the hell – the two defensive end that the bookends come that free the minute the ball was in Cameron Friel's hands. They were
1: in the backfield it, before it was snapped. Was, basically, he, yeah, he,
0: he was demolished. So here's what I want to say about that. The point is, is the, Utah. Excuse me. San Jose State saw something in the formation, all, you know, altered their defense, or, or they knew what UNLV was going to do in that situation. Well, and, and here's, here's the problem. Imagination in coaching isn't there. If another team can read your offense that well to have a jailbreak of that magnitude, and I asked Marcus Arroyo that in the meeting, like, you know, what what was that? Was it just a breakdown in, in uh, protection, or was that, ba- you know, just bad blocking? And he said he'd have to look at the film. Whatever it was, Chris, that should never. No, happen. but but if you had but time Brian, to it, plan it, that play. There's no excuse for it. It, and it that does happen. Look, it it,
1: it it does happen, and it shouldn't. Right? Like like you you watch the replay and you watch the play develop, and yeah, you know what? The problem is, I think No you, play you, developed. It you, was a up. Well, no, no, no. But what I'm saying is, UNLV, they, well, they they, they managed the clock poorly. They were in a and and to be honest. They probably were gifted a first down because I don't know if if was it the, was it the tight end who who um, yeah who
0: caught the ball who caught it the ball what like a he, yard yeah, short, yeah I thought as but, well but, being on the
1: field. You know, I think the poor clock management combined with the final play. I, I think. Look, the reality is you mentioned it. They've been competitive in a lot of games this season. Look, they went down the Tempe. They were competitive against Arizona State. They they were competitive against the top twenty-five UT San Antonio. They the, really the only game they weren't competitive and from a from a talent standpoint it's understandable was the Iowa State game. They were absolutely blown off the field by a really good Iowa State football team. At this point, you have to find a way to win games. You this team, as you mentioned, they are finding ways to lose games. Look, should they have won the Utah State game? Absolutely. Should they have won the San Jose State game? Absolutely. The the problem is you're not winning those games, and your record is what it is, and that defines who you are as a team. I know Marcus Arroyo has said there's no moral victories, and and look, that train has run its course. You want to have a moral victory by being competitive against Arizona State or being competitive at Fresno State when, when you were a program that didn't win any games last year? The reality is UNLV is very close to two years without winning a game. The last time they won a game was in Tony Sanchez's last game, and that was up at Mackey Field where they beat the the, the Wolfpack of, of Reno in that game. They have to find a way to start winning games. problem is I don't know if this is the week. At some point, if you don't start winning, I think the wheels come off, and that's not a good sign because at some point I think the kids are going to get tired of losing and one of two things happens: either you start winning games, or you stop competing in games. And if the latter happens, that's really bad news for for this program.
0: Well, there's no doubt about it. I, you know, I, I I'm not going to sit and in and in, in, in start to dig Marcus Arroyo's grave. I'll let him do that himself. But the bottom line is. All of this, the mystery at quarterback. I mean, maybe it was good because nobody I think thought Cameron Friel would be able to start the game when he could barely walk off the field in the in the game prior against Utah State. Yeah. And he ends up starting and playing the whole game and played pretty damn well, well and and, and Cameron here's the
1: thing. Cameron Friel to start the year was the fourth quarterback on the depth chart. And he's showing oh, no. that that he he can play. He he he's a competitor and he's he's tough. I mean he's clearly, clearly a very tough kid. Uh and he's he's a true freshman. That's the other thing. A lot of people he, he's gonna have his moments where he he's not very good. But I think against San Jose State, he didn't make a lot of mistakes. Like he was no, Chris, that was see, probably saying, his I'm best not, game.
0: I'm, no, I'm not saying anything it's it's not about Cameron Friel. It's about the secrecy of Marcus Arroyo. This is what it all boils down to again. You never know who's going to be back there. It's not – if it was working and fooling teams and they were winning games, I'd say great. But, you know, even on the depth chart, when you get your card, when you sit down in your media seat, this week we did have Cameron Friel up top. But usually the quarterback, he puts this guy or this guy, and it's always the or that gets the start. I don't know what his his thinking, his thought process is with that. But, again, this week, I mean, I said before the game, I was on Channel 3 with Jesse Merrick, and I said – you know, I thought Justin Rogers would start, and, and it would be a very short lease, and then we'd see Tate Bartella. I had no idea that Cameron Freeman would even be able to suit up based on how the beating he took against Utah State. I don't know how he's suiting up next week. And even royal said he was fine. Chris, we both saw that last play. He couldn't even get up to, to try to spike the ball. He was trying. But you could see he was clearly discombobbled. And, and, and I'm interested in all that. But, again, you know, we'll leave this subject alone. We'll see what happens next week when they go to Reno I don't know where this team finds a win. Maybe on the road against New Mexico, although they just beat Wyoming yesterday. And people say maybe when Hawaii comes to town, this team will get their first win. But this team could go without a win this year. And I don't know if this program or the last program that was anything. Well, any Brian, Brian here,
1: here's the thing. Look, I, I I, stress patience. I think people, yeah, they, they, want this, they want UNLV to start winning games. But I also think people have to be patient. This is a process, and, and, and I know it's it's a cliche, but Marcus Arroyo is, is building things. I think a lot of people don't really understand, like, he's got a lot of guys, look, when, you can redshirt players. Marcus Arroyo had a really good recruiting class. Not all of those kids are playing. A lot of those kids are redshirting. I think people need to be patient and see this out. I, I, I really think Marcus Arroyo deserves a, a real chance and I think that's something that UNLV, maybe not so much in football, but he needs more than a COVID year where nobody knows what the hell's going on. And he needs he needs time. And and look, I, I think we we gave Tony Sanchez five years. I'm not saying that we have to give every single coach that, that steps onto Maryland Park, the campus on Maryland Parkway five years. But I hear a lot of people saying Marcus Royal should be fired. Blah blah blah. I don't believe that. I, I think you have to be patient. Let the process play out. And look, if this if we go into next season and this team still hasn't won a game, and here we are a year from now, and they've maybe won one or two games. Yeah, you know what? Th- then then people I think can can be upset. But I I, I I said it at the beginning of the season, the very first pre pregame show. I know they went zero six last year. To me. That year does not count. You you
0: you hey, Chris, can't. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off here because we're too much time on UNLV, but i am gonna say this. I disagree completely. It's not that I, I want Marcus Royal's head. I think he's conducted himself absolutely horribly as a head coach in regards to handling the media. He blocks people from social media. I don't think this guy has showed maturity as a head football coach, and I'm just being straight. And UNLV is tired of patience. I'm a Lions fan. Patience is something that after a while you get tired of using that word. This team has been one of the worst defensive teams in college football for years, and right now they boast the eighth worst secondary in all of college football. It is unacceptable, and if he's got players that are red that are good enough to play and help this team win, you can't wait and red-shirt them. Get them in the game now. Find a way to win now. People are tired of hearing patience. And a team out scratch last year's season. I'm right there with you. Don't count that against him. But this year, yes, they're competitive. Competitive doesn't win football games, and this football program is in trouble. And if you can't recruit, and we'll see how he recruits with his red-shirt Red shirts. but with the Allegiant Stadium, the Fratina Center, and Las Vegas itself, then I'm sorry, you're garbage. And I'm not going to say he's garbage yet. I'll give him a little bit more time. I think we have to, and he will get next year. They're not going to fire him at the end of the season. I'd be shocked. But again, patience is a word that has run out in UNLV. They've lost their that they have they have completely lost this great uh, basketball. Um, you know. Mecca that they had here back in the early 90s. Now everyone's excited about Kevin Kruger, as am I. I think that's a breath of fresh air. We may see an improvement in basketball, some decent recruits coming in. He was able to hang on to Bryce Hamilton, which surprised the hell out of me. So I'm looking forward to that, but nobody wants to hear patience anymore at UNLV. This guy has got to go. If this team doesn't win a game this year and starts next year 0 2, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if you fire a coach at UNLV in midseason like they did Dave Rice in basketball a few years ago. But the bottom line is this guy doesn't talk to the media. He's secret about everything, and they continue to lose. Those are all facts. And until those facts turn around, I'm, I'm, I'm done with talking about uh, you know patience and everything else with UNLV. I think it's all run out, and I think Marcus Royal could have done himself a favor and at least – spoken to the media. You don't need to endear yourself but do your job. And his job is talking to the media. He does the bare minimum. He talks to the media at his press conferences and that's it. And he blocks members of the media from Twitter for saying negative things when coaches aren't even supposed to pay attention. Or at least they're supposed to pretend not to pay attention. And he just proved that they pay attention. So I'm done with that subject. Let's talk about something real quick before we get into uh, the rest of this. College football in general, Chris. Some big upsets yesterday. Penn State loses in nine overtimes at Illinois. I don't know if you saw that game, 2018, but I'll tell you what, it was wild. Nobody could score in overtime. By the time that game ended, I've never seen college athletes more just completely depleted of any kind of energy. They were so out of gas, it was time to almost put in your third string. I mean, these guys were done. What a hell of a football game, but a huge loss for Penn State. And uh, we'll tell you, that one, Oklahoma State, um, if you didn't see that one, Chris mentioned it. Iowa State, a really good team. Probably one of the best, I think, 4-2 or 5-2 teams in the country. We saw them come in here and dismantle UNLV. This is a really good team, and they took down number 8 Oklahoma State, handing them their first loss. 21-24 uh, was the final in that one. Pretty surprising. And Coastal Carolina, I've been saying all year, yes, this is a good lower-echelon football team, but they should not be ranked in the top 20 even though they were undefeated and Appalachian State proved that yesterday beating them 30 to 27 North Carolina State lost to Miami Miami an up and down team hard to figure out but they, they beat North Carolina State in the tight one 31 to 30 and um, Purdue after getting a huge win against Penn State I guess they used it all up they went into Wisconsin and got blown out yesterday 30 to 13 they got themselves up to rank number 25 in the country that'll disappear and next week in college football I'll just say this, don't bother me next Saturday, man. U of M and my alma mater, Michigan State, number six against number nine, both undefeated teams, and one of them could slide up possibly into the top Four, they just don't want to take Alabama out of that slot, and uh, and both. But what, the team that comes out of this undefeated should slide up into the top four and start being talked about as one of the playoff teams in college football. Pretty interesting, and uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, Chris, go ahead and hit fact this for us because I definitely want to talk about this. Fact,
2: this. fact this. If you don't like the facts,
0: take your ass back to bed. Fact this. Yeah, it's a fact. Three teams in Major League Baseball won over 100 games this season, or I should say at least 100 games this season, and not one of those teams will be playing in the World Series. This became a fact last night when the Atlanta Braves punched their ticket to the 2021 World Series by beating the Los Angeles Dodgers in six games. A lot of people feared after Game 5, when L.A. won that game uh, that, that we were going to see deja vu all over again. As last year, the Braves and the, the Dodgers, uh, Braves were up three games to one, and the Dodgers came back and won three straight to win the series. That was on a neutral site in Texas this year. The Braves got to host it at home. They got to treat their fans. To a big win. And Chris, I got to ask you something. Eddie Rosario Jr., have you ever seen anything like this guy? I mean, when you talk about a guy being on fire, I think his picture should be next to that term from this point going forward.
1: Yeah, certainly having a a very memorable postseason, former member of the Minnesota Twins too, which is kind of funny because that seems like a team that always seems to produce really good young players. They can never seem to really just put it all together. But yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the reality is I think Dodger fans are, are they're they're not happy certainly not happy with the way their season ended they win what 107 games 108 games and they end up losing in the NLCS to a team that they had a much better record than but also for you know had had home field advantage I, I I'm oh. one of those people who, who believes that look you know what you you play within the rules if you don't want to be the second team if you don't want to be the wild card win more games it's pretty simple but Uh, You know, I I can't believe that this Atlanta Braves team has gotten it together. And look, I know he didn't pitch last night, but Charlie Morton, had he had to pitch a game seven, I still would have put my money on the Braves because Charlie Morton is the great. And it sounds ridiculous to even say it because it's, well, Charlie Morton. He is the best game seven pitcher in the history of baseball. I said it and I. You you could put it in the bank if Charlie Morton if this Astros Braves World Series goes seven games, and Charlie Morton is on the mound for the Braves in Game Seven, book it. The Atlanta Braves will win the World Series.
0: Hey, you know what? I agree with you. Charlie Morton is unbelievable. It's <laughs> a must-win big. Time. But he's got he's got
1: four wins in Game Sevens. The next closest pitcher has two.
0: No, I I like the Braves in this series, and I think a lot of us, you know, just I still just can't stomach the Houston Astros. I'm still stick to my stomach. I love what Jose Altuve does. He is an incredible player, but the fact that he cheated a couple years ago, I've never gotten over it. I don't think I've ever been a bigger fan of an opposing team than I am this year when it's not like my Tigers. Uh, you know the, the the Atlanta Braves. I'm hoping they win. The Braves didn't get over 500 until August 6th. It's the latest by any team ever to reach the World Series of a team getting over 500. Well, yeah, because they didn't they... win 90 games the regular season. They finished as a team with the lowest win total in Major League Baseball to win their division, and they lost their best hitter to a torn ACL. I'm talking about Ronald, Ronald Acuna. Acuna Jr. Yeah. back yeah. in June, and yet they are going. To the World Series for the first time since nineteen ninety nine. Well, they still have this they still a,
1: have a guy named Freddie Freeman on that team, so uh, they do. They, they you know, do.
0: But I mean, you if you would have told me what the way this team was playing and losing Acuna Junior when they did that this team was going to make a run to the World Series and beat a 107 win Dodger team, I would have told you were nuts. Well, and, and, and that's yet, the
1: thing. I think the first of all the NL East, and I, and I can say this because my team plays in the NL East, was a joke. The NL East was an absolute disgrace this year as far as competitiveness anytime you have the, the what are they now the Miami Marlins in there they're like the Baltimore Orioles of the NL East uh the Mets who were cruising along until their season was derailed by just a, a plethora of injuries including the best pitcher in baseball Jacob deGrom being being shelved for the year look that that division was there for the Mets they choked they 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 just completely went off a cliff down down the stretch and Look, credit to Atlanta. They took advantage. They were the best team in that division when it mattered the most. They out they outlasted the Phillies, who somehow still can't seem with with all the the money they spent a couple years ago. They can't seem to get over the hump. Look, Atlanta. I I, I look. We 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 would have thrown dirt on their grave back in June, especially the day Ronald Acuna Jr. got hurt. I just don't. I, I'm not going to bet against them. I mean, I, I, no, you can't, I I'll Chris, be, with I, their, Believe me, Brian. The last thing I want to see is the Braves win another World Series. But I, 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 just, there's just something magical about that team right now.
0: Well, I, like I said, I'm not a. It's not that I'm a big Atlanta Braves fan. It's just I, I can't stand the Astros. So I want the Braves to win. Leaving this subject, I just want to say with Eddie Rosario, it's pretty incredible. 14 hits. In the series, batted like 560. It's tied for the most hits by any player in postseason history in a major, in a series, in a, in a postseason series. All the other four that he's tied with, Crick, um, Sudero, Euclid, Albert pujols who actually is still playing, he did it back in 2004, and Hideki Matsui, all of them did it in a seven-game postseason series, hit 14 hits. Rosario did it in six. This kit is amazing, and the upside is brilliant. All right, and just so you know, the odds on the World Series, the Astros are favored. They're minus 145, the Braves plus 125. I love that, Braves pitching staff, as you were talking about, Chris. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing this World Series. Should be a good one. And, boy, I've never pulled for a team other than my Tigers harder in the World Series than I will be for the Braves this year. Real quickly, got to get to the Oakland. Uh, Oakland, I can't believe I just said that. But the Las Vegas Raiders, 4-2, huge win last week. And to me, I say it was a huge win because they, they scored 34 points, 8.2 yards per play, almost doubling what they were doing before the game. Four turnovers they created and five quarterback sacks. They played as good of a game as they have all year under uh, Versace. I like what the Raiders did, although in practice on Friday, Chris, I'm sure you've heard about it. Darren Waller trips over a player and hurts his heel to the point that he could be out today. That would be a catastrophic loss for the, for the Las Vegas Raiders. I don't care if it's one game or the rest of the season. Darren Waller's a guy you have got to have on the
1: field. Yeah, of course. Darren Waller, well, I mean, maybe behind Travis Kelsey as the best tight end in, in the NFL. He's a guy who who is clearly a huge part of what the Raiders do offensively. Uh look, last week was last week, and, and it's done. It's water under the bridge at this point. You have to focus on the Eagles, a team that, well, they're 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 battling, but I don't think they're very good. Uh, Jalen Hurts, he's a guy who, uh, I mean, the Eagles seem to have really, somehow they 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 had the number one pick and they take Carson Wentz and all well, that clearly did not work. They win, they win the Super Bowl with Nick Foles as their quarterback. And now in a matter of what, four or five seasons, you go from having J, uh, 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 Carson Wentz and Nick Foles to now Jalen Hurts is your guy. You win a Super Bowl in that stretch and, and it's like the team has completely changed since that Super Bowl team. Uh, they traded uh, Zach Ertz last week to, to the Car- Arizona Cardinals. So Zach Ertz no longer part of that franchise. Uh, look, the, the the thing is the Eagles are a dangerous team. I don't know if they're a good team, but they're dangerous. And and for the Raiders, you just got to do what you did last week. I mean, was John Gruden a a – was he holding this team back? I don't know. I don't know if that's a question we should be asking. But if this team somehow goes on a run, then I think you do start asking that question because, look, I think a lot of people – As much as they liked John Gruden, I think a lot of people would look at what he did offensively and say he was still playing 1990s football.
0: Oh, Chris, I was going to say, I know we're just about out of time. I wanted to agree with you on that. Um, But the one thing I will say with Gruden, it does appear that he was holding them back. When you listen to players, they said last weekend on the sidelines they were more relaxed, and they don't like necessarily hearing the word relaxed, but when you if you play like that and put up 34 points, I guess relaxed is good, than they had ever been under Gruden. He was constantly yelling at the players, yelling at his assistant coaches from what we heard. I wasn't fully aware of that, but a number of players have spoken out about how they, they seem to be happy that he's gone. Maybe that's because of the remarks they heard that he said, and they're accentuating on you know, maybe neg- the negativity, but it does seem like Gruden maybe was one of the most overrated coaches. Well, yeah, I say that. I've said that that for years because of a hundred million dollar salary. That is way overrated, and giving him all the control they gave him, and this team has been stuck in the mud. Maybe they won't be in the future. I know we're out of time, Chris. I just want to say a couple of other great matchups today. Kansas City's getting ready to take on Tennessee. It's a should be a hell of a game, especially with Tennessee coming out, off their big win against Buffalo. The Bengals and the Ravens should be a great game in the in in, in the AFC North. And uh, the Bears at Tampa Bay is going to be interesting uh, with their defense. And Mack, one of the top sackers, playing great again this year, although he's a little bit banged up. And of course, the Lions go to the Rams and Jared Goff, who was dished off. And matter of fact, the Rams didn't like him so much for Matthew Stafford. They-